Well, last week in the beginning of chapter 12, we begin to talk about this subject of fear. And some of us learned for the very first time that Jesus had actually given more commandments concerning the subject of fear than on anything else. And so the magnitude and frequency by which Jesus addressed the subject, there can be no doubt that Jesus takes the fears of his people seriously. And I don't know about you, but that's comforting to me because oftentimes I found myself in fear. I need his help. I need him to help me to navigate through those things. Well, so it did his original disciples. We, we find out in, the, in chapter 11 that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem, which meant that he and his disciples were making their way to the city of Jerusalem. When, when there, he would be arrested, he would be beaten, he would be put to death, he would be placed in a tomb, he would rise on the third day, and then shortly after, he would resurrect and, uh, to the right hand of the Father. He would ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so what we find is when Jesus is there, his disciples will be left behind to continue to do the work of Jesus Christ. And this means that they are going to be facing the same difficulties, the same challenges, the same attacks that Jesus Christ did while he was here on earth. They're just now going to focus on his followers. And Jesus knew that this was dangerous because he understood that if with all these attacks and all this animosity towards them, it could cause them to begin to live in fear. And what Jesus understands is it's almost impossible to lay and to run this race that Jesus has laid out for us to pursue him, to know him, to be like him, to make him known if we're shackled to chains of fear. It's hard to, ran, to run when you are shackled to these types of fears. Jesus understood this. So here's what he began to do. He began in chapter 12 to begin to reveal a number of common fears that his disciples might have when he was gone. And more importantly, what he begins to do is he shows them, he not only reveals what they are, he shows how to overcome them. And last week we looked at two of them. One was the fear of discovery, which is the outcome of the sin of, of really um, a hypocrisy. And we also looked at the sin of being of the fear of man, being afraid of man. If you need to know how to overcome them, then listen to the message from last week. But we're moving on this morning to look at two other common fears for believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Here they are. Let me read them to you. Number one, first, the fear of future judgment. The fear of future judgment. There are still some born-again believers who are afraid of a future judgment. They're just not sure if they're secure in the faith enough not to fear about one day being judged by God. And the second fear is a sinning unto death, a fear of sinning unto death. We want to look at both of these today. And by the way, if you're new uh, here at Mercy Hill, this is not a Christmas sermon that I pointed out for us or picked out for us. This is a tough passage to be able to work through as was last week and the week before. But here's what we want to do. We're working through the book of Luke and we don't want to preach what we want to hear. We want to preach what Jesus wants us to hear. So you come to difficult passage like this, and guess what? We just preach on through it is what we're going to do. So we're going to continue to do that this morning. So look at this first fear, the fear of future judgment. Look at verse 8. There it says, and I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. The word and there is a conjunction, meaning that Jesus is connecting what he had just said in verses 6 and 7 with what he's about to say now in verses 8 and 9. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus basically gave this wonderful promise to his believers. He said, no matter how hard things are that you face, no matter how difficult this life is, no matter how many frustrations, no matter how you are persecuted for my sake, 
No matter how much you suffer for my sake, understand that you are not alone in this world, that your God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always, always be with you. And so that's a great encouragement to us all, is it not? But now he pushes that even further, and he pushes it to the future. He says, not only are you not alone now in suffering, but you are not going to be alone in the world to come. Look what he promises here. He says to him, he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. So what does it mean to acknowledge Christ before men? Simply this, to acknowledge Jesus is to confess allegiance openly and unapologetically to Jesus and all that we say and do without hesitancy and without shame. Let me simplify that for you a little bit. A little bit simpler way is to be able to say that you live your life in that everything you say and do acknowledges Jesus Christ in such a way that a lost world recognizes that you belong to Jesus. He said, that's what it is. It's not just about saying something. It's about wholesale, everything about your life acknowledges in submission that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's what he's calling us to be able to do. Now, this is possible. We understand that this is impossible. This is possible. We read in the book of Acts when Peter and John begin to preach the gospel to people, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders begin to recognize them as disciples of Jesus. Here's what it says, Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, I'm calling you to live for me in such a way that a lost and dying world cannot escape the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are not afraid, you are not a fearful to be able to live for him and be condemned by them. Now, there's a challenge with this. Here's why. Jesus said it this way. He said, if, he goes, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they shall then likewise persecute you. The reason that the world, a lost world, is going to persecute Christians is because all of their anger and hatred towards Christ was not satisfied at the cross. They have more anger for Christ. And so the only way to do it is to be able to fall out on those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And so listen to this. If you're a believer in Christ, if you know him, you are to live in such a way that people identify you as a believer, and no matter who you are, you will experience some level of persecution in this world. Some level. Now, it might be very small, might be very uh, uh, minute because we live in the United States. Again, I don't know if that's ever going to change. Looks like maybe perhaps it's going to. Or it could be even greater persecution, which means your very life might be required of you. And that's actually the context in which Jesus is giving this command. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, the majority of them would give their life in profession of Jesus Christ. And so what we know about the Roman government, and this is the context in which he has written, that the Roman government, when they would take over and defeat another nation or another people, they would oppress them. And they would come and they would live and, and, the, and their military would live amongst the people. They would occupy that nation and they would allow the people to keep living in somewhat the way that they lived before. They could have jobs, but they would tax them like crazy. They were allowed to worship, but they could keep their gods, but they also had to confess that Caesar was Lord over all. As long as they did that, then they could worship whatever false gods they wanted to. Well, you see that this was a huge problem for the early believers, was it not? And the reason is because early believers do not identify that there are any other gods. 
In fact, that's idolatry. So we can't, we don't want to commit idolatry. In fact, we don't suggest that Caesar is is Lord. Instead, our profession is Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? So this is what the, these believers would do. And yet, this really irritated the Romans in the first three centuries. They couldn't get it past their mind why all the other religions would continue to worship their gods and just accept Caesar as Lord when Christians just vehemently would not do it. So they had to add pressure to them. So they said, hey, look, if you will denounce Christ, or at least if you will, will confess Caesar, then we'll let you live. But if you don't, we're going to take off your head. And the majority of the times they put these Christians to death, they would, they would decapitate them. They would take off their heads. And so what we find is, is that at the last moment, they would always give you one last chance. Isn't that nice of them, of the Romans? That when you get up and you get into those gallows and, and they lay your head down on a block, they would sit there and say, hey, one last chance. One last chance. Will you confess Caesar as Lord? And if they said yes, they would escape death. And if they said no, their life would be taken. It has been conservative, conservatively estimated that in the first three centuries of Christianity, that six million Christians profess Christ to their death. Six million Christians professed. What causes a person to stare death in the face and someone say, you can live just deny Christ? And that person says, I deny Caesar and I must not deny Christ and their life is taken. What drives a person to do that? A promise like this one. They would cling in the early church to this promise, that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the angels who are in heaven. But if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before the angels who are in heaven. What does it mean by that? What does he, what does he mean? Again, what he's drawing to, and our context suggested this last week, is we think, you and I, too much of the temporal. Everything for you and I is about here and now, and yet James tells us that this world is but a vapor. It's here one moment, and it's, it's, it's gone the next. God wants us to think more eternally. And so what he tells us here is he says, look, yeah, you may be, you may be persecuted, you may go through difficulties, you may lose a job, people make fun of you. They may abandon you. They may even take your life in this world for you standing up for me. But guess what? When this life is over and you stand at the final judgment, that's what's in mind here. When you stand at the final judgment, you will not stand alone. I will stand for you. So there we are at the final judgment when all of us will give an account for the way that we lived our life, for the motivations of why we did what we did. And it will be all laid out and all bare there before God and there will be an accuser, perhaps, that will be there and to be able to come to be able to accuse the brethren. And yet we will not stand alone. Jesus Christ will be there. And what will he do? As we stand before God with our great accuser bringing mountains of sin as evidence against us, Jesus will stand up as our advocate, testifying as evidence against us. And Jesus will, as our advocate, he will come and he will say that we are his own. That by faith in him, and in his completed work, his death, burial, and resurrection, that our sins have been forgiven, our debt has been paid, and the wrath of God towards us has been satisfied on the cross, and God will declare us righteous at that point. That's what God will do. That's what Jesus Christ says. You stand up for me here. You can be assured you have no fear in the future. I will stand up for you in that time. Now, what happens 
if we don't. The question that one author asked was this, is what if we're not willing to acknowledge him as in a church service or in a class at school or in a break room at work or over the counter at the pharmacy or somewhere else? What if we are ashamed to be known as Christians? What if we are afraid to take a public stand for Christ on the crucial issues of today, such as homosexual marriage, for example, or the claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? What will become of us then? Verse 9, Jesus answers, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. In other words, we will again stand before God to give an account, but we will stand alone to defend ourselves and our actions and the way in which we've lived our lives. Now, listen, some people boastfully look forward to that moment. They will boast in it. Did you know that the majority of the people that I share the gospel with don't deny the existence of God? Have you found that? Uh, I mean, maybe we're not hanging out in the same place or nothing. You know, the bar down, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, this, the, we're, maybe we're not hanging out in the rest. But most people I know that I engage with the gospel and begin to talk with them the gospel, they don't sit there and say, I don't believe in God. They do actually believe in God, which is great because it means that they're not a fool. They believe that there is a God. And then at the same time, they believe there's a heaven and hell. Are, are you all with me that most people believe this? And they believe that they will go to heaven. Why? Because they are good people. Right? And they're excited about it. Hey, man, you believe in God? Yeah, man, I believe in God. You believe in heaven? Yes. Will you go there? Yes. Why? Because I'm good. I got lots of good stuff. And here's the problem. They are deceiving themselves. Here's why. Because what looks so good that they do here on earth, it only looks good and it looks pure because it's on the background of a defiled and a sinful world. But when they stand in heaven, in the presence of heaven, in the glory of God, then that which we thought was good all of a sudden begins to demonstrate that it, it for what it is. It is like dirty, filthy, leprous rags, the Bible says, our holiness in light of the holiness of God. And there, as all of a sudden it becomes known that we have failed and we have rebelled against God at that moment, there will be no defense. And we will be judged for all eternity, separated from God and this is what the word of God teaches us. It's, it's actually kind of a, again, it's not a Christmas message. It's a frightening message. It's one that wakes us up to be able to sit back. Now, what do we do with this? I think there's all kinds of errors we can make when we hear this. So let me try to clarify and make sure we understand it. I don't think that he is talking about a single occasion. I don't think he's talking about that if you and I, if, if in the midst of an office discussion, somebody says something against Christ and we remain silent for a moment, that that's it, man. You're done. You're, there's no heaven for you. Judgment is certain to be able to come. We know that even the apostle Paul denied Christ not once, but three different times. And I think we're all assured of his forgiveness and his restoration that Jesus Christ had brought about him. I don't think it means at a moment of time, beloved, we are sinners saved by grace. We are not perfect. What he's talking about, I believe, is the totality of one's life. When you take the whole sum of someone's life, is there enough evidence there that he was a follower of Jesus Christ that they would be condemned by the world for being a follower of Christ? And that's the idea, is that we would stand up, that we would show the evidence that Jesus Christ is within us. Second, he is not talking about earning our salvation by what we say or do. In other words, this isn't one of those go things going, hey, here's a list of do's and don'ts. If you just share the gospel enough with people, if you just tell people enough about what Jesus is, and you work really hard to be able to follow his commands, it might be enough for you to be born again. Do we understand that's not what it's teaching? 
because we are saved by grace through faith alone. But what he is talking about is he's talking about not the means of salvation works, but he's talking about the evidence of salvation, which is the works and the things that come out of our mouth. He says, when a believer in Jesus Christ is truly born again, they can't help but to be able to speak the words of their king, Jesus Christ. Are there times that they're intimidated? Yes, but overall, they cannot stand it. Again, going back to the apostles once again, going back to the apostles uh, in Acts chapter five, uh, they were taken and they were beaten and they were warned to be quiet. And the Bible says that they left the council uh, there and rejoicing that they had counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Why? They can't help themselves. The reason, beloved, that you and I live for Jesus Christ and the reason that we speak on behalf of Jesus Christ is you and I have been regenerated. God came, changed our heart, gave us a new wanter. Now we, pers- we, we prefer Jesus Christ over an easy, peaceful life. We'd rather have him than we would have peace here on earth. And here's just more evidence. Let me give you another. He is not talking about a mere verbal profession. This is so important. Many of us grown up and somebody would say, hey, are you saved? Yes, how do you know? Well, I was 12 years old. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I'm good. How many grew up in that generation? Two of us. Older than I thought I was. I got to be honest with you. Some of you look like you lived during that time. But, uh, but, <clears throat> but, but, we, but honestly, we would sit there in the way that somebody would defend whether they were saved is, hey, I prayed a prayer. That's not what Jesus is talking about here at all. And Jesus is not saying that a person can just get up and just say the words, and obviously that is good. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 7, 22, it warns us. He says, on that day, people say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, for I never, I never knew you. It's just an empty profession. But what he's talking about is a holistic life that you and I have lived that has so much evidence of being submitted and acknowledging Jesus in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we forgive and the way that we strive to make him known in our lives and the way that we love our spouse and the way that we love our children, that a lost and dying world turns to us and says, you're with Jesus. And when they do, there's gonna be a level of persecution. So what he says here to us in this finality is, is, look, it's not just what you say, it's what you say and what you do. John MacArthur gives us this warning. A sure way to miss out on heaven is to deny Christ as the scribes and the Pharisees had done, but just as sure a way as to gain hell is to make an insincere, in a superficial confession of Jesus Christ. Both ways will do it. Beloved, if your friend ever comes up to you and says, somebody who knows you, maybe goes to church with you, has known you for years, and says, brother, are you saved? I just really need to know. And they're doubting your salvation. That is a fearful position to be in. I'm not talking about people who don't know you. I've got people all the time, and I love this. Have you ever been out and somebody comes and tries to share the gospel with you? I love this. You know, sometimes I have fun with folks. Sometimes they'll come and they'll be like, hey man, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I said, yes, I have a God-sized hole that I learned that only he could fill. You know, just say stuff just to kind of mess. And some of you are like, that's good theology. Bat, wrong bad theology. 
And so they sit there and go, are, are you born again? And they're asking me because they don't know. And I get to share with them and say, yeah, here's how I know. I've repented of my sins and I've placed my faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And then we have a lovely conversation. And, and sometimes. But anyway, we have a lovely conversation until they find out that I'm Baptist. And they're done. All right. And God. <laughs> It's happened to you as well, hasn't it? <laughs> so the idea there is, is what we're saying is, if anybody ever has to come to you and you're doubting, it's just not a good place to be. Because often people are trying to wonder, am, am I truly saved? Am I truly born again? And they come to me and they ask that. And I tell them, brother, it, it doesn't, I can't just take you back to the time that you prayed a prayer because the, pray, the prayer may have been empty. It may have been meaningless. The only way to know that you're born again is your life is transformed in the image and likeness of Christ, of the one that you are pursuing. And the more that you pursue him and the more you become like him, the more confident you become in your acknowledgement of Christ and your voice and your actions, the more secure you are that there is no future judgment that is going to come because it's been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. So if they're asking you those questions, that's tough. But on the other side, but if you are being badgered and, and given a hard time because of your acknowledgement of Jesus in your life, then praise God, you can count on him acknowledging you and the world to come. Amen? So we see here the first fear. Let's get to the second fear. This one's even more fearful than the first. Second fear is the fear of a sin unto death. Verse 10, notice what Jesus says. He says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Are there any more terrifying words of Jesus anywhere else in the Word of God? Then there is a sin that can be committed that cannot by Christ be forgiven. We understand what that means. If we die in our sins, we are doomed and we are damned and we are judged to hell. All of our sin must be forgiven by God in this life. Are we agreed on that? So if there is a sin that cannot be forgiven, this is, this is the kind of teaching that incites nightmares. And it did for me, for your pastor, especially when I was a teenager. When I came upon this, I read it, fear set in, and I was absolutely convinced that I had somehow committed the unpardonable sin. That I had somehow... Now, if you were to ask me, well, what is it that you did? I'd say, I have no idea. But I just am convinced that I did it. And I'm not the only one because over the years of ministry, I've had other people who come as well and say, brother, I think that maybe I've committed this somehow in some way. And it's a terrible, terrible fear to live with. And so what is it? Well, we refer to this particular sin in a lot of ways. I just called it the unforgivable sin, but some people call it the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, others, uh, others call it the eternal sin or the sin unto death. But what is it exactly? Well, let me give you a couple of views of people throughout history, some people that hold different views of today. First, some suggest that it is some type of particularly egregious, egregious sin like murder or adultery or denouncing Christ uh, underneath a, a great threat of persecution. But obviously this cannot be the case, right? Because what we find is, is the testimony of scripture is that some of the greatest heroes of the faith had committed some of these egregious sins. Were they serious? Absolutely. Were they forgivable? Absolutely. We know, of course, we know David, he had committed adultery and murder, but yet God had restored him and forgiven him. We know that the, uh, we know the Apostle Paul was guilty of murder, but yet he was saved by God. 
He was forgiven. We know, of course, if we just had mentioned him, is, 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 uh, is uh, Peter. Peter had denied Christ not once but three times, and yet we knew that we could be forgiven because it wasn't based on one moment, but rather the totality of his life. And so here's, here's what I want you to understand, beloved. There is no sin as you, as a believer, can commit that cannot be forgiven. Do you hear that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're doubting whether God forgive you, that is of the devil, that is not of God. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of some unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness. So it can't be just some egregious sin. And so in other words, it cannot be committed by a believer in Jesus Christ. Second thing is, some suggest that it is, it is to be, it is to be part, um, particularly grieve, excuse me, a particularly grievous sin. Second, it is the impartable sin is a false belief concerning the Holy Spirit. And this kind of has to do with the context. We'll get into that in just a moment. But they think, if you think wrong things about the Holy Spirit, you can think wrong things about Jesus, but you can't think wrong things about the Holy Spirit. If you believe wrong things about the Holy Spirit, then you cannot be forgiven. Well, if that's the case, then we're all in big trouble. Would you agree? Because most of us still don't have the Holy Spirit figured out. Are you with me? If you don't, you're lying, all right? And uh, you're full of pride. And so, repent. And so, so the idea is it's very, very difficult to, to, when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ, the majority of us didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. And if we did, we went around naming the Holy Spirit an it and not a him. We didn't view him as, as a person. So if our pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit within systematic theology, if our pneumatology, what we understand about the Holy Spirit, if we're wrong about that, if that's unforgivable, then we're all in trouble. Would, would you agree? We're still trying to figure out so much of that, but it's certainly not the case. Now, let me say, beloved, there are certain things that you must know to be born again. There's some truths that you must know. Like you must know that you are deserving of death, that you have sinned, that you're guilty before God, that God in his love sent his own, only son, Jesus Christ, to be able to die for your place, that he died on the cross and he rose on the third day. And if we place our trust in that, we will be born again. Would you agree? Okay, so that needs to be right. All of this other stuff, I'm not sure, I don't believe that we have to have that right. So I don't think it's, it's basically having a false belief concerning the Holy Spirit. Third, this view is closest, and many people hold this. This is that it is sin crediting the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. So if you look at the context, both our context, as well as Matthew's account and Mark's account, it always comes, Jesus always makes this statement after the Pharisees uh, condemn Jesus. So Jesus delivers a man from a demon, and then they turn around and says, he does this by the power of the devil. So what people have believed historically is the sin that cannot be forgiven is ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And that's a very common belief. Is that what I believe that it is? No. I mean, there are times in my life that, look, look before we were even saved, many of us believed that Christians was a cult. <laughs> That ain't of God. They're a bunch of weirdos. They're not about love. And so certainly that's not the case because many of us have been saved out of that type of thinking. So it's certainly not the case, but I think it's close. So what is it? Here's what I believe it is. If, we dis if you disagree, that's fine. This is not a hill in which to die. But here's the way that I define it. It is a decisively rejecting the clear, tru uh, clear truth the Holy Spirit has revealed about Jesus. 
decisively rejecting clear truth the Holy Spirit has revealed about Jesus. This is the context of what we're looking at. In the context of what Jesus said this, he had just done it, he had just uh, uh, talked to the Pharisees in chapter 11. Jesus had casted out a demon. At that point, they said it was by Satan. Okay, we get all that. But what they're doing is they are doing something and saying something they know not to be true. Those Pharisees knew that Jesus Christ was the Savior. They had every bit of evidence to show that he was who he said that he was. They were the experts of the law. They had memorized the Torah. They knew the law. They knew the promises. They knew Jesus was who he said he was. And yet, in hardening of their hearts, they rejected Jesus Christ based on what they knew to be true. So many people will sit back and say, hey, look, you can't commit this then. You can't commit this today because really uh, Jesus isn't here in the flesh. But no, but we can because we can still sin against the Holy Spirit. Stop and think about it this way. What is the role of the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus Christ? So the Holy Spirit, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we come to realize that we've sinned against Jesus. Would you agree? We wouldn't have known that. And how do we do that? He takes us to his word. Paul said, I would not know that I was a sinner apart from the law. Who wrote the law? The Holy Spirit. We read about that in 2 Peter, that the Holy Spirit came upon men and made them lead the very, write the very words of God. And so when we deny the, what is in the word of God or reject that, who we're rejecting? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. But he not only comes and shows us that we are sinners, what else does he do? He also comes and shows our need for Jesus Christ. He takes the gospel and he gives clarity to our minds and he drives it into our heart and he leads us to the point to where we want to call out for the mercy and the grace of God, that we want to place our faith in him. Would you agree? All the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying is, the person who has come to that point recognizes that they're sinners, recognizes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and yet rejects the Holy Spirit continually and the working of the Holy Spirit in their life, there is some point that their heart becomes so hardened that they are incapable of repenting. Think about that for a minute. We're not talking about the atheist. The atheist is just deceived. They don't know the truth. Many people, have you ever noticed, they think they know what Christianity is all about. Oh, I know what you Christians believe, and it's all wrong, and it's full of error, and they really don't know the gospel at all. They don't know it. It's just in their ignorance that they're rejecting it, not in their knowledge that they're rejecting it. So the one who really needs to be in fear of this type of thing is the person who is sitting here today knows it to be true, but yet keeps putting off their decision to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the person who is the greatest danger this morning. And this happens more often than what you think. The person knows that it's right, but they'll say to you on different occasions, I was talking to a guy after the first service, he says he's in the military, and he said many times he would go and he would talk with people about the gospel. And they said, look, I believe all of this is true, but I wanna wait for another time in life. I wanna live my life. I wanna party. I wanna do whatever I want to do. And later in life, I'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, Mike, unfortunately, many of those guys have died in battle. And so here's what I want to say. Some of you would sit back and you would say to yourself, you'd say, or John MacArthur says very simply, he says, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject his testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It's knowing that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said that he did, but yet refused to come to faith in him at some point, And we don't know when it is. Sometime that person 
being convicted by the Holy Spirit is no longer convicted or drawn by the Holy Spirit, and we don't know when that time comes. The most dangerous person within a church is a person who is waiting to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Have they committed it? Most likely not. Some of you are like, well, what if I've committed that? What if I've come to that point? If you had committed this sin, you wouldn't be worried that you had committed it. You wouldn't care. In fact, you probably wouldn't even be here. But it doesn't mean that you're not in danger of walking down that same path that you have rejected the Holy Spirit and the draw of the Holy Spirit so many times that you are on the border of that very thing happening. Joseph Alexander wrote an ancient hymn. He says, there is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to, to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. How far may we go in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where, where and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart, while it is called today repent and harden not your heart. So the idea is this, is if you're afraid that you've committed this sin, prove that you have not by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. How, look, I can't really walk through all of this with you. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is family members, friends. Perhaps you have children that grew up in the admonition of Christ and now they seem to be falling away and they seem to believe at one time and now they want nothing to do with him. Have they crossed that line? I don't know. Only God would know, but I know this. As a parent, I would never until the day I die stop praying that God would supernaturally save their soul. But what I would do today, believer or not believer, whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you in, directing you in, today is the day to obey. Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 says, Today, oh, that you would listen to his voice, harden not your heart. One last thing, and we'll close. One last thing. Let me just finish this up, verse 11. Because I know if I don't, some of you are going to be like, why didn't you preach 11? Thank you very much for that, by the way. <laughs> verse 11. And when they bring you before the Pharisees and the rulers of the city, you see, when they bring you, Jesus is saying, if you live for Christ, what's going to happen? You are going to be in trouble by the world around you. They hate me, they're going to hate you, all right? He says, do not be anxious about how you would defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is just the opposite of what we just talked about. He says, the way that a believer is confident that they're born again is that they live for Jesus Christ. Again, not because we're doing good works for salvation, but our life is so much like Christ because salvation has taken hold. Are we agreed on that? So the more that we profess him and the more that we live for him and the more the world identifies us with Jesus Christ, the less we, we no longer have a fear. So what can we do? We can get up and we can speak and we can speak boldly to others. And how else are we affirmed in our faith? when we're yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, on that day, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Let him speak through you. So those two things, identifying with Christ, acknowledging him, and allowing the Holy Spirit to have his way in your life and yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what? Today, if that's you, you have wonderful, awesome confidence that you are in the faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for today. And God, I just pray for maybe those who are here that are struggling with some of these things. 
maybe some have feared that, Lord, that somehow they love you, but somehow they've committed this, this uh, unforgivable sin. Well, clearly they have not because they love you. If they committed it, they would not love you. They wouldn't be here. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. But God, we have some here who are waiting. They just keep pushing that decision down the line. Lord, they are well on their way of committing that very sin. God, we're not promised for tomorrow. I pray that they would repent and believe in you. God, I pray for those who are here and God maybe are struggling to really be the witness that they need to be. God, for the little bit of persecution in which we face, God, let us be bold. Let us be assured that when we speak about you and proclaim you and the world identifies you with him, again, that's where more confidence comes that we are in the faith and there is no judgment for us to come. That judgment is paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.